morning. Let me uh, begin us this morning by praying um, together. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, the gift that you give us of the Lord's Day, the gift of this day of rest and worship and fellowship with one another and um, with our families. Father, we're grateful for that. We're thankful for the blessing that it is in our lives. Um, Lord, as we prepare now our hearts for worship um, in about an hour um, by studying your word together even now, continuing to study the book of James, we ask that you would be with us, Father, that it would be your will, your delight, by your spirit to dwell with us and to grant us wisdom, even as we study uh, your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, today is our last um, Sunday school of the spring semester. We take the summer months off, um, typically, and we'll do so again this year. Uh, which probably means we'll be picking up with James um, in the fall, because we are not going to cover James 3, 4, and 5 today. That's going to be beyond the scope of our time. Uh, before I, I move into Sunday school, I, one thing I wanted to announce to you, or I think about as we were singing, that last hymn that we sung, uh, that John led us in, and Andrea, was um, We Will Feast in the House of Zion by Sandra McCracken. Some of you may know her. Um, she's a recording artist, um, you know, believer, reformed Christian, a wonderful woman. Um, she is actually speaking this year at General Assembly, um, which is taking place in Dallas in a month. And she's particularly doing a women's luncheon um, in Dallas. And so the details about that are in your, the insert in your order of worship today and on our website. So any of you women in particular, if you want to go have lunch with Santa McCracken and a couple hundred other people and hear her talk, and, um, and I'm sure probably play some music, I'm guessing, um, as well. So I encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity if you're interested. Um, so let's jump now into James chapter 3. So last week we concluded the second chapter of James, uh, which of course began with James's admonition about um, not showing favoritism as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he plays it out and what that looks like in the assembly of God's people. And then the second half of that chapter is also about what it means to have consistent faith um, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular, um, to obey, to obey the law, to obey God's word, to um, do what James calls good works, but really is, is simply, um, or works is just how he refers to these things, uh, but really he's just talking about obedience there, obedience to the law of God. And we talked last week about how um, James here is not setting faith and obedience against one another, but rather saying that obedience is the fulfillment of faith and the, and the, the way in which our faith is proved to be true, um, is verified um, through our obedience to God. And, and so there's no real conflict um, between James and Paul. Um, Paul would certainly agree that the faith that justifies is a faith that is true faith, that is not articulated only by the mouth, but is lived out by the body and in the life. And so James and Paul are on the same page. So let's now move into chapter 3 and begin to look at what James has to say here. Here, James will begin to discuss the tongue, and I say begin, it's not really the first time, we'll look at that in a moment. He's actually picking up on a theme. Um, if you look earlier in James chapter 1, of course, um, James 1, 19, this will be good for context for this passage, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26 of the same chapter, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, again, gets back to that point in James 2, right? If anyone says he has faith, 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then he defines pure and undefiled religion, which is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Um, so the point is that this idea of the tongue is one that James has already introduced in, in, in his work, and now he's looping back to it again. Remember, James's argument is often doing this kind of concentric circle thing where he's coming back again and again um, to the same kinds of topics he's introduced before. So James chapter 3, I'll read the first six verses or so, and we'll talk about them. First five verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect or mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. All right, any thoughts about these first five verses or so here? What jumps out at you? What's interesting about these verses, this text? Yeah, Eric. It does. So, so Eric pointed out, it makes you wonder how it connects with what we were studying last week. And I think that's a great question. You know, often um, it's helpful for us to look at how different parts of a, of a, of a book um, fit together, how they connect to one another, how the argument builds upon itself. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I think that in a couple of ways we can talk about that. Um, well, let's, let's just think about that for a moment. How does verse, chapter 3, verse 1 in particular, um, and then the old concept of the tongue in general, how does that connect with chapter 2? Thoughts about that? It's one of the ways that we're called to obey God, to show our faith by works. Yeah, those are great connections. So Ben is making the point that Jesus talked about it's not what goes in the body, but what comes out of it that makes it unclean, as we read in Mark just a few weeks ago in our sermon. Um, but also um, the idea that we'll be judged by our words, our words will condemn us um, on the last day or justify us. Um, and also um, that, that it's out of, the, out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? The, the, the mouth actually reveals the heart, and I think that's right. Um, I think part of the connection here to answer your question, Eric, is um, that, that James is arguing that, that it is through your tongue that your, your heart is revealed, um, that your faith is revealed, or your lack of faith is revealed. 
that your tongue is actually one of the ways in which you are called uh, to show the veracity of your faith, the integrity of your faith um, through the words you speak. It's also interesting, I think there's a connection between 3-1 and 2-1 in the sense that 2-1 introduces um, a situation that it's happening in the assembly of God, right, in the, in the worship of God's people. Um, show no partiality, that's a general admonition, but then he also shows that and illustrates it by um, show no partiality, especially in the gathered worship of God's people. And, and this also, this verse 3-1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Let's just think about that for a moment. What is James talking about here? What is the, what, what, what's the point that he's making in 3-1? Yeah, so Nathan's making the point that when you teach, when you open your mouth in front of people and talk, and they sit and listen to you, um, you you just inevitably you're in a position of authority, and the words that you choose to say can can lead them in good ways, or they can mislead them um, in in ways that are that are wrong, and that's that's what James is talking about. And that, that's right. I think James here is especially speaking to pastors. Um, we should just be clear about that. This is, this is especially, I think, talking about teaching in the church, especially ordained uh, men who are teaching in the church, who are preaching God's law um, and God's word to his people. Um, this is, you know, we're going to talk about this some tonight, when Patrick's ordained, that to be ordained is a, is a solemn and significant thing. And there is, um, without a doubt, a stricter judgment that will be applied to pastors in the last day um, than lay people. Um, and I, and that, that is... The thing that James is talking about here, basically, he's referring to that reality that those who teach, those who use their mouth to instruct others, um, will be held accountable um, in, a, in a stricter way um, for the words that they speak. And I think, and that fits right in with what we believe as Reformed um, Christians. Our Westminster Larger Catechism, question 150, asks the question, um, are all sins equally heinous in the sight of God? And what is the answer? No, right? All sins are not equally heinous in the sight of God. Um, but by several aggravations, some sins are more heinous than others. And then in question 151 lists out all the aggra- or not all, many of the aggravations um, that will make a sin more heinous. And many of the aggravations that make sin more heinous is if there, it's a sin that's committed by someone that has authority over someone else. If it's an abuse of that authority, if it's not a careful stewarding of the responsibility, the leadership. And, and of course, this this applies specifically to pastors because, you know, not only is pastors exercising authority generally, but specifically spiritual authority over God's word and uh, the sacraments of Christ and all these different kinds of things. But 3-1, we're not, I, wanna, I don't want to let us all off the hook there with 3-1, right? Because, yes, 3-1 is definitely pointing to me and to other ministers especially, um, but it's also talking about anybody who is using their tongue to instruct others. How many of us are doing that every day, right? Pretty much, all the time, right? Many of us are doing that. Um, you might even make the argument that pretty much all of us are doing that, right? Even um, children, you have you know, younger siblings and you're instructing them with your mouth often. <laughs> you're, you're influencing them the way that you speak. Um, you know, all over the, I mean, this, this is something I think probably can in some sense be applied to anybody in the room. And of course, there are gradations of this and those with more authority have to take this more seriously than others. 
Um, but it's true that all of us exercise authority, and all of the, one of the primary way any of us exercises authority is through our tongues, right, through our mouths. Um, we're, not, we're not compelling people with force to do what we want. We're persuading them with our tongues. Um, we're speaking to them. And we have to be very careful about that because when we exercise authority with our mouths, um, we will be judged with greater strictness. I think it's also helpful to connect this back to the story of creation because this is actually one of the things that, that humanity is called to do in general is to exercise authority with their mouths. Think about Genesis 2. Um, what is the first thing that God does to, for Adam or asks Adam to do for him um, after his creation? What's that? Take dominion. And how, does, how in particular in chapter 2 does he first take dominion before even Eve is created? Names the animals, right? God, it's a really fascinating chapter because, you know, God's created all these wonderful animals and he brings them to Adam. And the text tells us that whatever Adam said was their name, that became their name. That was their name, right? The Lord didn't name the animals. He actually delegated that responsibility, that authority to Adam who began to rule over creation, take dominion, as Alyssa said, um, by using his tongue. And that, that becomes a paradigm for human life, right? That we, as human beings, this is, we rule um, through our words. And of course, this is one of the things that distinguishes us from the rest of creation, right? Is, is speech, and that's not an accident. That is something that God um, created us for. It's part of what it means to be created, I think, in God's image is the ability to speak and to, to rule um, through our time. And it's really fascinating, right? Wait, what, what are words except for, you know, just literally just air currents, right? That are just sort of sent out um, vibrations into the, you know, into the, the atmosphere that sort of hit our ear canals and and go into our brains and, and we interpret in different ways. I mean, it's really interesting that this totally insignificant thing, pushing air around, um, actually can influence and bring about such change, right? For good or for ill. And we all of human history <laughs> is the story of this reality. Yeah, Carrie. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when your kids bring home the animal and then they put a name on it, then you're in trouble, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's definitely true. No, that's right. It's a different kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, we, and it's interesting, too, of course, how did the first sin happen? It came through the serpent speaking usurping that kind of role, um, speaking words of deception, lies about God um, that then humanity became complicit in. So through the tongue also, we could argue, sin came into the world um, through um, the kind of thing that James is talking about here. So I, th I think that's just helpful in terms of thinking about this um, um, in terms of context. Anybody have questions about 3.1, that idea that there will be stricter judgment for some, not for others? Right. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think James would argue that, that actually the problem is with that person who says, go in peace, be warm and filled, that if they had just kept their mouth shut, it would have been better, right? To not say words that didn't have backing in terms of their life. And that's one of the arguments he's going to make in this chapter, that, that your words have to have integrity. Not only do they need to be good words, but they need to have, be words that have integrity. I mean, he has this metaphor, right? Um, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No, neither a salt pond even yield fresh water. That the words we speak need to be consistent with the posture of our heart and our, our, our posture towards God, ultimately. So I think that's the way that it connects. I understand what you're saying, that he, in chapter 2, is emphasizing words are not enough. But I think here he's saying the words you speak need to be true words, need to be words that flow from your heart and from, from yeah, your true self. Yes, sir. Yeah, it does. Good. Yeah, 2.13, right? Um, judgment, or 2.12, even better. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then we have judgment here coming back. Um, 3.1, you'll be judged if you teach with greater strictness. And then as Todd pointed out later in chapter 4 um, and 5, there is also, well, especially 4, um, there, well, 4 and 5 both, that there's, there's a promise of judgment that's coming um, that, that will come on those who are oppressing the righteous, on those who are oppressing the poor. Um, judgment is coming. And and I, I think that, that verse, verse 212, speak and so act as those who are um, to be judged under the law of liberty is a really important thing. It's, I mean, we talked about this last Advent, right? When we talked about death and judgment, one of the four last things, that, that certainly the Bible teaches that one of the ways that we are wise, to be wise, is to live as those who will give an account for their lives and for the words that they speak, that will, that will be judged, will be measured. Um, by these things will be accountable to God. That's, that's an important part of wisdom. All right, so let's think a little bit about um, what it looks like in chapter 3 to, to speak with our tongues in wise ways. I'll just read 2 through 5 again. James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits and bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. What's the basic point that James is making here in these, these verses, verses 2 to 5? Yeah, if you, can, if you can harness your tongue, it's a very positive thing. He's going to bring up some negative things in a few minutes, or, but yeah, right here it's very positive, right? That basically the point that he's making is, um, how, how do you know whether a person is mature? How do you know where they are a perfect man? And by perfect, James doesn't mean sinless. He's talking about maturity, the same theme that he was talking about in chapter 1, that this, this idea of being blameless before the Lord. How do you know, James is saying? if someone is a mature person by his works and by his words in particular, right? By what he speaks. 
If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. And I think this is really fascinating because what is the hardest part, I would say, in many ways, of sanctification? It's our words, right? It's a lot easier for me to, to, you know, control my body so that I don't punch somebody. Like, I do pretty good most days in that realm, right? You know? No, but even traffic, like, you know, you're, you could, you're not actually, like, strangling anyone, right? That's a good thing. That's self-control. But what, what is the much harder thing to control when someone cuts you off or when someone offends you or someone, right? It's your tongue, right? It's your tongue. And your tongue is actually in that moment, Jesus would say and James would say, and we should all say, as been pointed out earlier, it's revealing the overflow of your heart, right? It's revealing what, what, what you want to do to that person, even though you're not, you do have enough restraint not to actually do it, um, hopefully. Um, but you're, you're articulating a kind of posture towards them. You're, you're speaking in a way um, that is not in keeping with um, the law of God about that person. And, and I think that's the point that James is making here, that, that it's a, it is largely a positive one here, that, that this is the path to maturity. The path to maturity is self-control over your tongue in particular. And I think, let I me mean, just think about it for a moment, right? The people that you respect, the people that you look up to spiritually, that you know are mature, they're not frivolous with their tongue, right? They don't, they don't speak in ways that are unkind. They're not, they're not always talking. Maybe they actually talk less than you do, right? <laughs> right? That actually might be part of it. Um, and I do think that's an important thing as we think about self-control over the tongue. Uh, certainly as you read the Proverbs, part of wisdom is just talking less. You know? I mean, it is. Um, you know, that, that, that's one of the ways you can def- Understand, you know, know a person to be a fool, right? Is they just keep talking, talking, talking. They don't. They're not. They're not, as James says earlier, slow to speak, quick to listen, right? That's a different kind of posture, a different kind of wisdom and maturity. Um, so that's part of it. It's easier to not stumble in what you say if you don't say as much. Um, but he's James is really pointing out this connection between the, between the the role of our tongues and the outcome of our lives, right? Um, that just as a, a bit in, a, in the horse's mouth will direct him where he goes. The horse is really big. The bit is really small. But the bit leads him around and controls him so that our tongues, in some sense, have control over our whole bodies, our whole lives. In the same way also, um, this rudder that the ship um, d- is directed by is very small. The ship is huge, and yet it has all this control. So really, I think James is just trying to help us see this connection between how we speak and who we are, who we become. In many ways, our lives are just the sum total of our words. Right? That's the primary way that any of us are really exercising influence and dominion in the world is through the words that we speak, um, I, would, I would argue. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, and the whole scriptures just has so much to say about speech language, right? Speech ethics. Um, of course, Proverbs has so much to say, but even New Testament, right? 
Ephesians, Paul talks about let no coarse or filthy talk be coming out of your mouths, right? You know, it's not just words of anger. It's words that are, that are filthy before the Lord that he tells us not to say. And it's not just because God is a prude, right, that he doesn't want us to speak in that way. It's because it reveals our hearts and because the words that we speak actually shape our, our perspective on the world over time. Right? They shape others, and they actually shape us as well. I mean, think about it as parents, right? What's the most important thing you do as a parent besides providing a, a you know, safe, warm um, home with food on the table and all those things? It's the words you speak, right? I mean, your children, after 18 years, are going to be influenced by nothing more than the words that they've heard you say, either the words they've overheard you saying or the words that you've spoken directly to them. Um, and that, that really is the sum total of who they become. Um, is, is the words that you speak. And I think that's the kind of James, things James is talking about here. Yes, Alyssa, you had your hand up. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's right. There's some typological stuff going on here. Um, I was reading about this in the commentaries I was looking at this week. And in verse 2, it's interesting that um, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And it's possible that the word body there has a, has a double meaning, um, that it, it may be a reference to the, the church um, as a whole. Um, of course, you know, I, I can't do a whole lot with the, the horses analogy, but certainly we think about ships. Um, that's, a, that's a common metaphor that, that comes through the early church and also the New Testament um, connected to the flood and to Noah and the church being the, the ark that you know, is, is saves the, the chosen race out of, out of God's judgment. You know, there are certainly some connections here that may have reference to the church in particular. Um, so I think that's right. I do think that this is, James is making a specific point about, um, in much the same way that he did about in chapter 2, he said, don't show favoritism in this way in the church, but of course we know that that principle also has many other applications in our lives outside of just gathered worship, right? Um, also, here he's making a specific point to teachers, um, you know, be careful with being a teacher because you'll be judged with greater strictness, and then making, but then he's making more general application for anyone, um, not only ordained teachers in the church, but anyone who exercises authority. I think part of the reason, part of what he wants us to see is that we're all exercising authority with our mouths. This is, we're all teaching in some sense. Um, and we all have to be aware that we'll be held accountable for the ways that we influence people uh, through the words we speak. And we're all doing that constantly. I'm doing it right now, right? I mean, this is just, it's just inevitable. Yeah, Eric. Yes, yeah, the, the idea of the tongue being the member, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there are a lot of connections there, I think, that could be read, you know, more sort of typologically or fully. I'm not going to press that too far, but I think it's, I think it's there. Yeah. Right. Yes. 
Yes. Really? I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I think that's what James is saying here. I mean, he, he later in a minute is going to make the idea that the tongue is like a wild animal. It, it, you can tame every beast of the world except for the tongue. And so the idea is that you have to, if you don't control your tongue, your tongue will control you, right? If, you, if you're not, like you're saying, pulling on the reins and directing your tongue which way to go, um, then it's going to lead your body all over the, the racetrack, so to speak, um, um, as, as we saw in that example. So, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, let, me, let me continue here, and let's move on at least to verse 12. So now James is going to talk about some more of the I mean, here, as Kerry pointed out, this, he's been talking more positively. These are the things, when a tongue is controlled well, it's like a horse that is being controlled by his rider um, with the reins. It's like a, a ship that is directed by the pilot using the rudder. Um, things, are, things are good. But now in verse 5, um, last part of verse 5 through verse 12, he gets into some of the danger of the tongue. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. That's right, isn't it? Such a small fire, right? Just pushing air through the, I'm pushing, you know, pushing air um, through the room, right? That's all we're doing, we speak words. And yet, what a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. And again, this may be a reference to the church, certainly, I don't think that's, impossible. I think it's certainly a part of what James is doing here is, is talking about the church. He's talking more than that, but I think the church is in view. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I think there there may be a reference back to the garden, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that um, sin came into the world um, through the tongue, through the tongue of the serpent. Um, and when we use our tongues, especially in the assembly of God's people with one another, in the community of the church, to deceive or to attack. Um, that's a satanic thing, literally, in terms of it's an imitation of what Satan did. Um, it, it, is, it is the way that the serpent um, uh, brought in um, sin into the world through the actions of Adam and Eve. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water? I'm sorry, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What jumps out at you here? Yeah, it is. It's very similar to Romans 3. <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's Romans 3 where Paul is talking about the way in which the entire human race is under the judgment and condemnation of God because of our sin. And certainly James is making a point here about that kind of thing, that, that no one is really truly able to control their tongue apart from one man, right? And that is really interesting as you read the, the conversations that Jesus has in the Gospels, the way that he is in perfect control of his mouth, um, even his, as he stands on trial, you know, he, how he chooses not to speak largely um, to defend himself. Um, he, he is in control of that. But yes, largely, this is humanity, right? This is humanity. Um, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's an important theme in James. I think it's worth considering for a moment why why would this why would James be so concerned about speech ethics within the context of a Christian community that's experiencing persecution and suffering, oppression from um, political leaders, perhaps a threat of violence. Um, what are you going to be tempted to do in that scenario, particularly leaders? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a lot of what James is doing here. He's he's concerned about that danger about leaders in the church, especially, but also just church members beginning to stir up sort of violence and, and a, an aggressive posture towards their oppressors, as Todd put it, using the same tools that have been used against them in return. Um, and this, is, this would have been a real temptation um, to speak in ways that, that literally set on fire the body, right? That, that filled it with wrath and anger and with you know, sort of righteous frustration um, and, and encouraged others to lash out. And I think that is part of what James is talking about. Did you ever hand up, Matt? John? Welcome to Jeremy. It's okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, life and community, um, as, as he talks about that. Yeah, actually, absolutely. He talks so much in there about the tongue and about it. Yeah, the ministry of holding your tongue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, absolutely. That's a great connection. Life together, that's what it's called. Nathan had his hand up. Nathan, there you are, Nathan. Sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, you're in the corner. Yeah. 
sure. The vortex of anger and, yep, righteous, righteous, righteous anger. Self-righteous anger, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Nathan's just making the point that within the workplace, you know, as he's working in a non-Christian workplace generally with other people who are not believers, the, the words that he speaks are the ways in which he's perceived, his faith is perceived and judged. That's right, and it can have a, a positive or a detrimental effect on people's perception of the church. Um, Eric. Good. Yeah. Right. No, certainly not. Yeah, the, the goal here, as Eric's pointing out, is, is James is saying, is, is pure speech and pure words, which the Psalms talk about. Um, it, this, and this is, the, a lot of ways, what Christian maturity looks like, is, is learning to use our tongues well. Um, to go back to the garden in Genesis 2, to name the animals, to use dominion, to rule over creation. And I'll just say, this is part of what we're doing in church each Sunday. Um, Martin Luther called the church a mouth house, um, by which he meant basically the only thing that happens in church is people exchange words with one another, right? It's just a lot of talking. Um, and that's right. And, but we believe that what we do on Sunday morning when we gather for worship as God's people is sanctified speech, right? You, the Lord speaks to us. Um, it's a dialogue. The Lord speaks to us um, often through the pastor, um, through the word that is read. That's the whole process of the liturgy. And we learn to speak back to God. And what we're doing there is we're training our tongues. Like every Sunday, we're doing speech practice for an hour and a half, right? That, that's what we're doing in the worship service. That, you know, we, we learn to, to when the, the word is read to us and it says, this is the word of the Lord, we're, we learn to say, thanks be to God, right? That's not just like a performa sort of thing we do. That is supposed to shape our hearts. Our mouths are supposed to be shaping our hearts that we should have a heart of gratitude when we hear the word of God, when we have a chance to read it. You know, when we say, you lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Like, we're, all of this, it's supposed to be training us and how this is what we're doing. We sing hymns, right? All these things are supposed to be training our mouths. As, as Eric said, we're not just supposed to be silent or avoid, you know, the, the, the dangerous things, what we can do with our tongues. We're supposed to learn to speak uh, purely and wisely and righteously. And that's, that's a big part of what the liturgy does um, for us week by week. It's train us to, train us to speak, train us to speak to God in prayer, um, but also to speak to one another in our lives. All right, that's, that's about all our time. I've really appreciated this. It's been a great study. I've really enjoyed, especially the, the sort of give and take, the dynamic. Thanks for coming and showing up with your thoughts and your questions and your comments, um, and we will continue this um, in the fall. So let's stand and pray. Father, we are grateful for 
um, your son Jesus Christ and the way that he ruled over creation um, when he spoke it into existence, the way that he ruled by the word of his mouth as he lived among us in his incarnation, the way that he even now upholds all things by the word of his power. He still, Father, speaks and upholds and rules over all things. Father, as we are gathered together as the bride of Christ, help us to learn to conform our speech to his, to speak the words that he gives us, um, to speak in ways that give life instead of take it. And Father, we ask that your spirit be doing this among us and our families and our hearts as individuals and our church community as a whole. And may this church and our worship always be a place where uh, we speak rightly, we speak in righteous ways, uh, ways that train our hearts to love you more. We pray it in Christ's name.